Serial killers have always fascinated as much as terrified us. From Jack the Ripper to Jeffrey Dahmer, they have been endlessly documented and studied by police, academics, and citizen sleuths alike. So it's surprising to find out that there are still compulsive killers out there who were captured, tried, convicted, and imprisoned, yet somehow managed to warrant not even so much as a Wikipedia page. I'm Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee Enterprises and the producer and co-host of Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles. And along with Nat Cardona, we're going to spend the next handful of episodes presenting one such case that we're calling Fearfully, She Walked the Streets. Over a span of years in the early 1990s, Robert Sylvester Alston killed at least four women in Greensboro, North Carolina. In the time between the start of his killings, the local police were slow to grasp the connections and even arrested a man on very scant evidence who was released thanks to DNA evidence that exonerated him. What you're going to hear in this episode and all the ones going forward are readings of articles from the Greensboro News and Records archives, along with excerpts of interviews with the journalists who covered the story as it was happening and revisited it later on. We're going to have links to all the articles that we talk about in the show notes. And if you appreciate what you're hearing, we encourage you to check out past episodes, which examine additional stories from some of Lee Enterprise's other newspapers across America. Our episode will begin after this short break. July 1st, 1992. Strollers have walked into thin air by Lorraine Ahern, staff writer. Mindful that the murders of three Greensboro prostitutes remain unsolved from 1991, a new missing persons case rekindles fears for police. Along Martin Luther King Drive, they are known as strollers, young women prostitutes who feed their crack habits with $20 tricks. And when one turns up missing, as in the current case of 19-year-old Shamika Ann Warren, police have learned to pay attention. Last seen May 21st at Julian Street and Martin Luther King, the same neighborhood frequented by three prostitutes who were slain in 1991, Warren was reported missing this past week by anxious family members. Hoping she is alive, detectives who distributed the Greensboro Natives picture Wednesday were careful not to link the case with the unsolved murders from 1991. But the police handling of the case and the difficulty they have had in pursuing leads provide a window on the jagged desperation of crack addiction. Some of them come and go. Some of them have tried to clean themselves up, Greensboro Police Detective Marty Sexton said. It's a problem they can't get away from. Apparently this stuff has them. Along with Warren, who vanished from her Julian Street boarding house and left behind clothes, shoes, and a purse, Sexton also is investigating the cases of two of the three street prostitutes who were found slain in 1991. Sharon Martin, age 26, whose decapitated head was found in the fall on a hillside near Murphy Traditional Academy, last was seen in the same area of Martin Luther King, where Warren disappeared. Joanne Robinson, 23, was found naked and strangled in a vacant lot near the same neighborhood. Sadie Farmer, 34, who had a lengthy drug record, was shot in the back and left in an abandoned building. 
Although police have found no obvious link among these killings because of the different way the women died, there may be a common denominator between the cases. All of them young women from southeast Greensboro. They all fit the same profile. Drugs, drug trafficking, and prostitution, said police detective David Spagnola, who was investigating the Farmer and Warren cases. Most missing person reports, the person is where they want to be, but we've got no explanation for this case, and she does lead a pretty dangerous life. Warren's mother, who moved from Greensboro to Jacksonville, Florida three years ago, said in an interview that she knew about her daughter's drug habit, but didn't know for sure how she supported that habit. Brenda Warren Noble, age 34, learned in Greensboro that her daughter was prostituting herself to earn drug money. Despite Warren's chaotic circumstances, the mother said, the daughter had called the family collect about once a week until she vanished in May. When Noble's husband and Warren's sister questioned a Julian Street woman who had roomed with Warren, alleged prostitute Ellie Greeneyes Brooks, they said Brooks implied that their daughter met with foul play. Police, who also interviewed the roommate, hope Warren's case will end the same way another missing persons report ended in November, with a young woman alive and well in another city. Yet, lurking in the background are last year's three unsolved prostitute murders, along with the mysterious death of prostitute Cheryl Lynn Mason, age 35, behind an I-85 truck stop. The fact that all these women's lives, Warren, Mason, Farmer, Robinson, and Martin, revolved around Julian Street and Martin Luther King Drive, was hardly a surprise to those who knew the neighborhood. This is sort of a spot, just like in the big cities where you, you have certain streets, said Sue Walton, an assistant manager of the night shelter run by the Greensboro Urban Ministry. After the homeless shelter closes its doors each night, Walton often has watched the nightly ritual of the strollers. The cars, some of them expensive, slow down and pick up the streetwalkers, often dropping them off again within a matter of ten minutes. Like the detectives who negotiate their way through this desolate subculture, Walton knows that street prostitution has been going on for years at truck stops, boarding houses, and fleabag motels. But since crack has entered the picture, even veteran detectives and social workers sometimes are unprepared for what they see. I remember one night watching this one figure walking out there. All I saw was this thin person, this little girl, who couldn't have been more than 12 from the looks of her braids, Walton said. I never did get close enough to see her face. Why don't you tell me your name and title and what you're doing nowadays? My name is Lorraine Ahern. I'm an assistant professor of journalism at Elon University, which is in central North Carolina, about half an hour east of Greensboro. Bring me back to you in the early 90s and your time that you spent uh, back in Greensboro. Well, I had uh, moved back to Greensboro where I had worked previously while I was an undergrad at UNC Greensboro. And um. After working at the Annapolis Capitol in Maryland, I came back to Greensboro and I was working sort of general assignment, a beat they called issues and ideas. And then when our minority affairs reporter left, I took over her beat as well. So I was covering the black community, which was 35 percent 
of Greensboro in population. And um, I had a, a lengthy background in covering courts and cops and crime and uh, social issues in Maryland. So now this terrible thing comes across your desk. Um, tell me what those newsroom meetings were like, um, you know, what the editor had to say when this first came across. Well, there was a great deal of skepticism between the managing editor and myself. I had done a project around 1990, 1991 on unsolved murders in the city of Greensboro. And that caused a lot of bad feeling on the part of the police department. But a lot of the um, cases were in the black community, a lot of the unsolved murders. Um, so that was kind of um, setting the stage for this. Really, the police were not talking about a serial killer. It was the news and record, really, when we got an artist, you know, and you can see a lot of people were working on these stories. We had our newsroom artists make a map of the killings. And that was when we realized these women literally knew each other and were moving in the same circles, which was, you know, obviously a very dangerous occupation to be a streetwalker. And um, many of them had crack addiction problems because we were in the midst of a terrible crack epidemic that was really affecting the city. You know, just going off of that, these murders were really, you know, isolated into this zone in Greensboro, right? Could you like describe physically the setting? Because you're telling me the the type of, you know, action that's going on there. Was it isolated from the other part of the community? Was, you know, abandoned buildings? Like what, what, what did it look like back then? It was socially isolated. It was very close to downtown, but Greensboro was still very segregated city and this was the other side of the tracks so it's residential it's poor it was the result of white flight um, it, it had been a really nice neighborhood a hundred years ago and then when black people started to move in it became 100 percent black greensboro changed the name of the street which they do a lot they changed ashboro street to martin luther king drive and they changed a very notorious corner, which was Julian and Best Street. They changed the names of those streets um, to, I guess, make it better. Uh, the, the black side of town was neglected um, in many ways. Um, no sidewalks, uh, very poor city services, very poor trash pickup. So it was it was a regular working neighborhood but it was neglected so this was the southeast side of town which was on the other side of the railroad tracks coming through greensboro and um it was almost predominantly black is it fair to say that you know you were boots on the ground in that neighborhood when this stuff was going on and you were reporting on it were you doing any knocking on doors man on street stuff yeah we all were um i had um profiled a number of community organizers in the neighborhood because they had so many struggles. They didn't have supermarkets. Um, they didn't have any kinds of services that we had on the white side of town. Um, so I had a good rapport with neighborhood people. 
neighborhood organizations. And I also made it a practice to talk to people on the street, like prostitutes, vendors with push carts, um, people who ran convenience stores and laundromats, you know, so we we really were, and, and a lot of reporters did this, we, we were in the community and we knew people that we could call on. And, you know, talking about those people that you called on, I mean, what was some of the, the sentiment and the feeling that was going on? Like, what were you hearing firsthand from these people? Well, the sentiment was that there was a a killer who was doing this and the, and that it was it was connected and that these women knew each other and that the police department wasn't putting any emphasis on it or investigating it properly because the women were prostitutes possibly drug addicts and were on the side of town where people were neglected and nobody would miss them and nobody would complain at the same time, there's there's a lot of context to this situation, and I'm not sure how much you want. Whatever feels natural, whatever you have for me. I mean, go for it. So early 90s, there had, I'm going to tell you about three or four events that contributed to what I call the missing black woman syndrome. First, a young child who had an identical twin was found raped and murdered in the black community. She was, I believe, bound and gagged and discovered in this field near her house. And she was black and her family was poor. So there was obviously pressure to solve this case. It was very, very disturbing, frightening that someone could do that to a child. The police picked up a man named Melvin Bennett who was developmentally delayed. He worked at UNCG cafeteria and he was pressured to confess to this crime. Um, there was only, there, someone had seen him that day or something like that, but it turned out um, after he spent two years in jail awaiting trial that the DNA showed that he didn't do it. But the police insisted they had the right man and the case was closed. So there you had a triple injustice. No no justice for the child victim and her family. Uh, no justice for Melvin Bennett, um, who did go free, but he was still being talked about as this child killer and lost two years of his life. And then the, the third injustice was for the community because someone was still walking around probably who had done this. So about the same time the next year, a white insurance agent who was married to someone very prominent in our community, a prominent jeweler, she was kidnapped and went missing. And tragically, she was murdered. The police devoted extraordinary resources to that case. And they did have more clues to go on, like uh, use of her ATM card, things like that. So they had something to go on. But they partnered with the uh, State Bureau of Investigation. They had helicopters looking for her remains with infrared technology. You know, it was a, a total red ball. And, of course, they solved the case. So <laughs> here you had five, a series of five women turning up dead, mutilated. Granted, they were there were not a lot of clues. No one knew what had happened, but the police were not talking about it as a serial killer, which, in fact, it was and turned out to be. They did not want to acknowledge that the crimes were connected. 
even when the mutilations were so similar, it took them about a year to acknowledge that. What do you think the logic is behind that? Doesn't it kind of seem pretty obvious when it's so similar that there is a serial killer? What, like, it just seems odd. I don't know what the strategy was. Um, it was a very uh, sensitive thing for the police department, and I think they did not want to admit that they had underestimated this. Another event that was uh, happening at the same time around the fall of 1992, there was a cover-up in the police department because a patrolman who was assigned to this district, Southeast Greensboro, where these crimes were occurring, he was forced to resign because he was caught having sex with a prostitute in his cruiser while he was on duty. And this was a story that had been going around the community, and I had been hearing it that this officer was shaking down prostitutes. He wasn't raping them in the sense of using force, but he was intimidating them into having sex with him. So there was a, a sting set up, and they caught him literally with his pants down. But there was a cover-up in the police department, and the city council wasn't told about it. The newspaper found out about it. So um, there was a complete lack of trust between the community, the Black community, and the police department. It was really, really bad. Yeah, wow, I did not expect you to say that. Definitely a curveball as far as that goes. July 24th, 1992. Fourth since last fall. Tip spurs discovery of woman's body. A body found in a vacant lot is the fourth dead woman found in southeast Greensboro since last fall. By Kelly Simmons, staff writer. The badly decomposed body of a woman was found under leaves and debris on an overgrown lot in a southeast Greensboro neighborhood. Greensboro police found the unclothed body Thursday after an anonymous tipster directed them to the lot in the 900 block of Martin Street, Greensboro Police Captain Drew Kennedy said. Investigators could not determine the woman's race because the body was so badly decayed. The body was sent to the state medical examiner's office in Chapel Hill for identification. Kennedy would not say whether the body had been mutilated. It is not the body of Sharon Martin, a Greensboro woman whose head and arm were found last fall near Murphy Traditional Academy, Greensboro Police Lieutenant Jim Hightower said. Police refuse to say whether they think the body is that of Shamika Warren, age 19, a Greensboro woman who disappeared in May. However, the body was found only a couple of blocks from Martin Luther King Drive and Julian Street, where Warren was last seen. Warren's father, Ronald Noble of Jacksonville, Florida, said his family is optimistic that the body is not Warren. They are frustrated, he said, because it has been hard to get information on the case. We're not rich folks that can catch a jet and fly back and forth between here and Greensboro, he said. The body is the fourth woman found dead in southeast Greensboro since last fall. In addition to Martin, the others were Joanne Robinson, who was found naked and strangled in a vacant lot, and Sadie Farmer, 34, who was shot in the back and left in an abandoned building. Police have formed a task force to investigate the killings. Bring me back to when uh, Larry Darby Jr. came across your desk, and um, it looks like you wrote on that in September of 92. Obviously, he was not the one that ended up doing 
the murder uh, or any of these murders. But do you just remember anything feeling strange about that? You know, anything about the department saying, oh, no, we've got the guy. This is obviously the guy. Do you remember any weird feelings around that or? Oh, yeah, very much so, because it didn't fit. And first of all, he didn't have a car. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that makes it difficult to be a serial killer. I would say in a community like Greensboro, it's it's kind of spread out. Um, you know, it's urban, but that would have been a lot of ground to cover on foot. Um, there was no, there seemed to be no physical evidence. Someone saw him walking near the woods where the body was found. Um, but he had been working for a caterer, um, again, a very prominent person in the white community. And the caterer did not want to be connected with an accused serial killer. So there was a problem with his alibi and it was very unfair. Um, So things closed in on him. And, you know, again, as with the child's case a couple of years before, the police had the wrong person and didn't want to admit it. So, yes, it felt very wrong. Um, Darby was adamant. Even his girlfriend was adamant that he he seemed normal that day. There was no blood. He just came home with his um, cook's uniform on. And the police tried to make him out to be a butcher, literally a butcher. And he had butcher knives. But that was his occupation. There was no there there. Right. July 31st, 1992. Anonymous tip. Did killer call cops on body's location? The killer himself may have led police to a decapitated female body last week. The anonymous caller who told police where they could find the decapitated body of a woman last week could be the man who killed her, police said. I'm of the opinion the caller could have been the murderer himself, Greensboro Police Lieutenant Jim Hightower said. Hightower would not say why he believes the caller is the killer. The man called the Greensboro Police Detective Division on July 27th and told a receptionist that investigators would find the body of Shamika Warren in a vacant lot on Martin Street. A male caller also called a local television station and gave the same information. Warren, 19, has been missing since May. The afternoon of July 27th, investigators found a badly decomposed, decapitated female body in a lot in the 900 block of Martin Street. State medical examiner Dr. John Butts said Friday that he is not determined whether the woman was black or white. Facial features are used to determine race, he said. Fingerprints, which are also used to identify dead bodies, are not available because of the extent of the body's deterioration. Unless the woman's head is found, the body may never be identified, he said. Butts said he hopes to find Warren's medical records and use those to determine if she is the woman found last week. So far, no records have been found. Warren's father, Ronald Noble, said from his Florida home that detectives had contacted him for medical records. He was unable to provide anything, he said. You know, you talk about how, you know, frustrating or, you know, terrible that feelings, you know, feels as you're reporting on this. And, you know, he comes across, you know, the headlines and that kind of thing. 
Now, as far as, you know, when there's kind of you know, the victim after victim after victim, you're adding it on this list. Do you remember your personal feelings like in your covering this? Like, bring me back to what your headspace was like. Well, it was difficult. And I talked to the other reporters about the difficulty because these women, they were all being lumped together as prostitutes and drug addicts. And they were. Crack was a really bad thing. But we had to be careful that we didn't dehumanize them for the sake of their children, number one. I think almost all of them had children. Um, They had mothers and fathers and siblings. And we had to keep in mind that they were human beings. And that seemed to be lacking a bit in the overall police response. And I don't mean individual detectives, because we knew individual homicide detectives who cared as much about one side of town as the other. And to to them, all victims were equal. Um, But we felt that there was this kind of um, aura around this case that these women didn't matter and would not be missed. And we were trying to push back against that and speak for their families at least. And I guess we were sort of advocating for them by keeping it in the news. A tremendous thank you to Lorraine Ahern for taking the time to talk with Nat Cardona. And we'll have more from their conversation next week. So make sure that you're subscribed to the show wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles is a product of Lee Enterprises. It is produced and edited by myself, Chris Lay, with interviews produced and recorded by Nat Cardona. If you appreciate what we're doing, we encourage you to support whichever newspaper it is that serves your community. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you back here next week. <laughs>